0: We're going to begin our time by reading the traditional Easter morning uh, count, uh, one I'm pre- pretty sure you maybe have already read or heard today, uh, read and in in, in, um, coming up to this service. Um, but I feel it's appropriate to begin our time with this text, and then I want to kind of step back and talk about how we got here, or how they got there, um, and, and reflect on all that went on around these few days that literally changed everything, everything. Luke 24, verse number 1 through 12, uh, the Scripture tells us, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, a certain, certain women, uh, with, uh, they came, and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest, It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. You know, it's easy to read this account and think, that's a nice story. It's almost as if everyone expected it. It's almost as if everyone was around the tomb, counting down to the sunrise, uh, awaiting something spectacular. But that wasn't the case. No one expected a miracle this day. No one anticipated a resurrection. In fact, as the women hurried to tell what they had seen and heard to the disciples, the very ones that ought to have expected the resurrection. First number 11 says, and their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not. Peter, you can't, you're not going to believe it. Jesus is alive. John, James, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, guys, you're never going to believe this. Jesus is alive. We've seen him. Angels are proclaiming it. Peter said, Nah, you must be fooled. You must be mistaken. Dead people don't rise again. We thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he's not. Messiahs don't die, Messiahs don't bleed. Messiahs are never buried. This seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter, feeling something stir within him and having to see this for himself, Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves and he departed. Not believing, not proclaiming, but marveling to himself at what had happened. How could this be? What took place? Where is the body Of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, this morning came on the heels of a whirlwind of a week. A week that started out with so much promise, but came to a crashing halt. A week that began with a parade, filling hearts with joy and hope. But a week that ended with a death, bringing dread and fear and doom. This was the week of Passover 30 A.D., It was the culmination of three years of anticipation, of hype, and build-up. Three years since Jesus the Nazarene had came onto the scene, preaching of a coming kingdom, and he demonstrated its power in the here and now. He might talk about it being far off, but its power is here, and it can't be that far away. It must be at hand. He spoke with authority like none other. He encouraged and empowered and engaged those who had been left behind, those who had been hurt, those who had been condemned by religion and sin and the world. He healed, he embraced, and he loved. Oh, how he loved. He brought God's presence and power to people in places that doubted God would ever or would ever want to be near them. He seemed less interested in upholding traditions and politics and more interested in building something that would be open and accepting to everybody, that would be constantly improving, enlarging, and extending its boundaries and borders in order to reach more, to give grace and mercy to more. Jesus the Nazarene made an impression on the religious and the unreligious, the holy and the unholy, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad. Jew... And Gentile. Everyone that encountered him were stunned at his words, convinced by his works, and captivated by his example. He had everybody and anyone who saw and encountered him wondering and speculating and declaring that he was the long-awaited Messiah from God. Even those who didn't know the prophecies or came from other religions beheld Him and thought to themselves, if God or the gods were ever to make their dwelling with us, they'd be like Jesus. They'd look like Jesus. They'd talk like Jesus. If there ever is a God in flesh, I bet it looks like Him. But the one thing about Him that made people doubt the slightest bit was the way that He loved Surely God's Messiah would be powerful. Surely He'd be mighty. Surely He'd have great things to say and great things to share. But would He really love like that? I mean, would He really love everybody? Would He have compassion on everyone? I mean, maybe a few that deserved it, but everyone? I mean, yeah, we've been taught that God loves us, but we've never really imagined that He liked us. We just suppose that He put up with us, that He tolerated us. But to truly love us, how could He? Why would he? Yet as surprised as they were by Jesus' grace and mercy and love, they were mesmerized by his presence and his power. Nothing seemed to cloud his view of God or hinder his connection with God. He spoke so clearly the words of God. He demonstrated so effortlessly the words of God. Every sermon convicted everybody, but they made everybody feel like they were a part of the plan as well. It was so amazing. Jesus raised the standards of old, making everyone wonder who can be saved. I mean, we've heard it said of old, but He just took the standards and raised them up. Who can possibly be saved? Yet, Jesus reached past the barriers of old, making everyone wonder who can't be saved. He questioned religion. He commanded nature. He defied logic. He overpowered sin. He seemed unstoppable. He even opened graves. It it seemed like nothing was impossible for Jesus. People who took His words by faith experienced undeniable wonders. People who trusted in Him were compelled to follow Him, even if it cost them greatly. Jesus was irresistible. He seemed to be the desire of every heart, meeting needs people didn't even know they had. His words, His works, His promises, they instilled peace and love and joy and hope and value and potential that people had otherwise given up on having or had been told they couldn't have. Oh, if we could have been there and experienced that. But from the eyewitnesses that we've heard so much from, for three years... Everyone in Judea was slowly convinced that Jesus was their future, that he was the future of the whole world. Even the religious leaders were resolved to see their establishment replaced with whatever Jesus seemed to be building towards. They would say, The world has gone after him. Whether he was building a new religious headquarters or if the rumors were true, if he was building a kingdom, it must be nearing, it must be soon people began drawing lines in the sand. Do we stay with our establishment? Do we stay with tradition? Or do we join Jesus? If we join Him, and He's not the Messiah, it could be dangerous. If we join Him and He's fooling us, if He's pulling wool over our eyes, if He turns out to be a fraud, He'll surely be caught. He'll surely be killed. And we with Him. But if we don't join Him, and he is Messiah. It could be even more dangerous. On Palm Sunday, a massive parade was organized by His followers. Jesus went along with it. People lined the streets of Jerusalem shouting psalms and, and songs written thousands of years before for this very moment. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus soaked it all up. He reveled in it. He welcomed it. And thousands of people were ready to do whatever He commanded them to do. If He said, let's take the temple, they'd take the temple. If He said, let's take Pilate, palace they'd take Pilate's palace if he said let's take Rome they had a legion or more of men that would take whatever and go wherever he said to go Jesus simply had to say the word but he never did in fact after all the hype died down a bit Jesus withdrew to a private place only a few knew where he was and after they found him he began to turn the narrative from a takeover to a handover. One of his own would hand him over to the authorities that Thursday night. Many of his followers still expecting something big with Passover just beginning, with many festivities continuing in the area for the next month. Woke up Friday morning, and they began to hear whispers, Jesus had been arrested. Perhaps this was part of his plan. Perhaps they begin to, 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 they begin to think maybe he is trying to set up something big to kind of surprise us all and take them down as if they did not expect it. They begin to take to the streets, assembling outside the courthouse, hearing that he was going to be brought out soon and given a public sentence. Needless to say, they were all aghast when Jesus was brought outside. Over 600 Roman soldiers were called in. Overkill, absolutely. Jesus wasn't a threat. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't have a weapon. Maybe they were expecting Jesus to try to do something, uh, pull a fast one. But there he was, limp and weak and submissive. And the scene around him seemed like an insult to injury. Nobody. He had nothing for anybody to be afraid of. Pilate intended to let Jesus go. And he flogged Jesus in front of everybody which would have left him so beaten and so broken that he may not even survive anyways. A Roman centurion would have took a flagrum in hand, a short leather whip with balls of lead tied to the end. These would have cut so deep with each whip across the back of Jesus. First through the skin, then the blood vessels, then the muscle, then to the bones. Bruises gave way as quickly as they were formed, leading to excessive bleeding 39 stripes across the back, beard yanked from his face, thorns forced onto his head and brow. The skin of his back would have been peeled, hanging off. Blood would have been rushing down his face. And to add insult to injury, they took their sticks and struck him across the face. Dislocating his jaw and combining with the blood loss, his vision would have begun to wane. Was all this really necessary? What has he done to deserve all of this? As the crowds assembled, this is what the text tells us they saw. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. He brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the Passover, preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your King. As He began to bleed more and more, the stone pavement began to be covered as He lost the strength to stand. He would have laid on His face. Jesus' followers and fans were speechless. What was this? What had happened? They looked for Peter. He was nowhere to be seen. Rumors had it. He ran away. Only John stood by him with his mother, weeping, shocked, in total disbelief. As Jesus lay face down on the pavement, many sentenced to execution, never made it past this very spot. And what happened next was so alarming, so excessive, so unnecessary. As Pilate was ready to just walk away and watch Jesus bleed out, They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, we have no king, but Caesar. Something they never would have said on any other day. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus' followers would have stood there speechless and now hopeless. How in the world did all these people come to this place where they were so against Him that they would want Him to die such an awful death? I mean, look at Him. Hadn't He suffered enough? Eyewitnesses shared with Luke as they began to prepare the cross that Jesus collapsed under the weight of the beams. If you look back to chapter 23 of Luke, you'll see in verse number 26 that as they led Him away As they tried to put the cross on his back, he must have failed. He must have lost the strength to carry it. And the Scripture says, "...they hold on a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus." As Jesus stumbled under the piece of under the weight of the wood, losing more and more blood, the w- wood piercing into him with its splinters, rubbing his raw back, time slowed to a crawl. Suddenly all the details, all the information, all the tidbits, all the gritty eyewitness reports, it's like they come to a halt. We don't have details of him being nailed to the cross, of him being raised up on the beam. Not because people didn't see it, but because people had seen enough of it. Everyone in the first century would have been far too familiar with the sight and the smells and the sounds of crucifixion. It would have sounded something like this. crucified him. Why? They didn't need a reason. Luke twenty three thirty two says, there were also two others, criminals in comparison to Jesus who wasn't a criminal. They led with him to be put to death. And when they come to the place called Calvary there, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Roman crucifixion was designed to bring about as much pain as possible. Nails were hammered into one's wrist at the very specific spot so as to sever a nerve, bringing about intolerable pain. As the cross was stood upright, the stress on the muscles would bring about debilitating pressure on one's lugs, causing cramps and eventually rupture. As the victim by nature fought to cling to life and press themselves up, every muscle would twist into knots, blood would cease to flow, oxygen would deplete, pain would become throbbingly intense, and consciousness would slowly fade away. With every heartbeat, cardiac arrest was that much closer. As the blood thickened, dehydration intensified, and gasping for air proved more and more futile. The capillaries all over one's body from head to toe would rupture one after another. And for Jesus, it seemed like things were even more intense. Down in verse 44, it tells us, when Jesus was crucified, there was darkness over all the earth. Almost as if what happened to Jesus was so awful and so devastating that nobody could even look. So God turned the lights off as Jesus began to suffer the worst kind of death. All they heard was screaming and agony ramping up more and more. His blood loss was inconceivable, far more than the average crucified man. What was going on on the cross when Jesus was hanging those three hours? Anyone who watched Jesus die that day would have been in disbelief. What a humiliating way for anybody to die, but especially for Jesus. His mother stood by along with John some of the other uh, lady friends of hers, and she confided in Luke. She must have told Luke that what many others had, could hardly believe, that as Jesus held on to life, that He whispered a prayer to God that made no sense to anybody, but except maybe her. If you look back up in verse 34, the Scripture says that Jesus was heard whispering a prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Isn't it amazing? Even in His death, He still claimed the authority to forgive sins even when the sinning was being done to Him. They seemed to know good and well what they were doing. They mocked and they said out loud what everyone else was thinking. Verse 35. The people stood looking on him, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ, the chosen of God, after all. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. Jesus would die sooner than most crucified people. Having lost so much blood before enduring, before his heart would give way, before his lungs would collapse, he bowed his head and entrusted his soul to God. Down in verse 46, it says, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last they did not have to break his legs or pierce him to kill him like they did many others because Jesus had bled to death. The one that John the Baptist introduced as the lamb of God who had came to take away the sin of the world. I remember when Jesus was a boy at Passover in the temple? He was there, always about his father's business, slitting that lamb's throat, watching the blood drain into the trough, knowing that one day he would hang. Knowing that one day, the Lamb of God himself bled to death on a cross. Of course, no one was making sweet and enduring theological connections that day. Everyone walked away stunned and scarred and scared. The Sabbath was beginning as the sun was setting and a last minute bid for his body meant that Jesus would be buried rather than burned. Two Sanhedrin elites would sully their good names and careers by laying hands on the most unclean of all dead bodies, a crucified man. The one sentenced to die by the very court they had just resigned from. Who in their right mind would do this? On Passover, on the Sabbath, Eve, they would never recover. They would never be brought back from this place. They would be forsaken as lepers, blacklisted by their faith. But they didn't care. Jesus may not be the Messiah they thought He was, but they wanted to give Him a proper burial. He had still changed their lives. But perhaps they knew something that most didn't. Perhaps when they touched His marled, mangled, charred body... They didn't feel unclean at all. Perhaps for the first time, they actually felt clean. The rest of His disciples laid low in fear of their own arrest, but a few women came to pay tribute and anoint the body as soon as the Sabbath was over, Sunday morning about six. They didn't go to the tomb expecting anything miraculous. They simply wanted to say goodbye. Mark tells us a little bit different of a story. Very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone away? Because they didn't expect it to be rolled away. Because dead people stay dead. And no one would dare touch a tomb on the Sabbath. Who will roll the stone? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And they didn't immediately say, Wow, he's back. He's alive. They feared that someone had taken the body to smear his name and maybe even set them up. So John tells us they ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, to whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. And worse than that, we don't know who they is. But they must have taken Him. Again, Luke 24, 11 and 12 tells us his disciples weren't about to assume anything spectacular had taken place. I love that Luke writes their skepticism into the story. They should have been confident he was alive, but they weren't. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They didn't have extraordinary hope. But suddenly all over town that Sunday afternoon, people began to spread word, rumors that Jesus had been spotted here and there. When the authorities got word of His body being missing, they take serious action to hunt down anyone associated with Jesus to see if some sort of games were being played. Perhaps a resurrection was being staged. And His disciples hunker down knowing that the guards are looking for them as diligently as they are looking for Jesus' body because they assume if we find the disciples, we'll find His body. And John 20 verse 19 tells us on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They locked the doors, they barred the windows, they turned off the lights, and they were not at all prepared for what would happen next. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there were several occasions when Jesus would surprise the disciples. One time they were out at sea. The stormy waters were scaring them and Jesus showed up walking on the water saying, don't be afraid. Here they are afraid that this is the end. They killed the leader. They'll kill the followers. But verse number 36 tells us that later that day, after they had shut the door and barred the windows, turned off the lights, as they had, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a ghost or a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Well, you know why. Because dead people stay dead verse 39 behold my hands my feet that is I myself handle me and see for my spirit does not have flesh and bones as does not have flesh and bones as you see I have when he said said this he showed them his hands and his feet and while they did not believe for joy and marveled he said to them have you any food here i mean come on i mean can you make this up well guys you know y'all can disbelieve all you want to and doubt all you want to but i'm kind of hungry it's been a woo-hoo rough couple of days i would love to have some fish so they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and I bet they gave it to him just to see if, you know, what's going to happen. Is it going to drop to the ground? I mean, hey, what is going to happen? And they gave him some fish, and they gave him some honey, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, "There are, these are the words which I spoke to you when I was still with you. I bet they just stood there and watched him like, what? You know, people don't, I don't like when people watch me eat. Y'all like that mean? You know, I don't, I don't, I'm worried, of, am I shutting my mouth? Am I being proper? Do I have something on my face? Jesus is in there just eating. And they're just staring around like, what? What, 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 is, what is... And he says, he looks up from the table. Did I not tell y'all this was going to happen? I mean, don't you remember the words I spoke to you while I was still with you? That all things must be fulfilled that were written in the law and Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. The entire Old Testament predicted this. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary, for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. The repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations. <laughs> Luke wrote this around 62 AD when Christians were just beginning to be persecuted by Rome. Rome. To all nations. I imagine when he wrote that, he really was putting a a lot of stock in Jesus' words. Because if somebody picks this book up in the middle of Jerusalem 2,000 years later and reads that Jesus thought he would be preached around the world and, and everybody's forgotten about him, Luke looks like a pretty big liar. But here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world holding a book that contains Luke's gospel and here Jesus says, I will be preached all over the world. Jesus says something in this next verse that changes their lives, that changed history. He says, You are witnesses of these things. There were eyewitnesses and direct benefactors of an event that changed the world. Luke clues us in on what he told us at the beginning of the story that made it so significant. We're reading the account of people that saw and heard this with their own eyes and ears. And this is very important for us to understand as we kind of wrap our heads around what this means for us. Their faith was in Something that happened to someone. They didn't just believe a list of rules. They, weren't just, they didn't go and preach a, a book or a document. They began to proclaim that something happened to someone. Someone very important that we saw it, we've experienced it, and you can too. Before His resurrection, they all unfollowed in fear, but because of His resurrection, they were back in fearless. 49 he says, "I present, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city until you are endured with power from on high." And here's such an awesome promise of Easter. Because they had faith in this something that happened to someone, that someone shared with them the spirit of that something. My point is, this was an event that happened. This is not just a myth or just a legend or a religious story. This isn't just a list of rules or a list or a document that we found and discovered and thought, wow, that sounds cool. This is something that actually happened. And many eyewitnesses took risk their lives to spread it around the world. And here we are, two thousand years later. On the other side of the globe, different languages, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different, 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 and yet we still sing that Jesus is Lord. You can't make that up. And if you've experienced the something behind the someone, if you've experienced the spirit that changed the world then, you know how real it is. He gave them what he gives every believer, every person that places faith in the something that happened to the someone who places their faith in Jesus' resurrection. He gives us the resurrection spirit. And we can believe and receive what they did. You can ask Matthew and Mark and John and Peter, they saw it with their own eyes. Luke thoroughly investigated all of these things. He compiled an orderly account. He documented them as facts so that you could have certainty. John said, I wrote all these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in His name. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. We trust their word as if And we believe it absolutely is the Word of God. And God will move in our faith and give us His resurrection spirit making this personal. I want to close with a few words from Jesus' number one follower, Peter, who years later would write to a church on the brink of persecution. When many thought this was a short ride, but it's not going to last. Peter would write this, and can you believe it? Here we are all these years later where we can hold and read this very letter. Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important because he is telling the world, whoever would read this in the future, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Messiah of God. He alone can connect you with God. On what basis? I mean, Peter's going to explain on what basis, Peter? The miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the moral authority of Jesus, the potential healing of Jesus. How, how can we believe you that Jesus is Lord? Peter says, Blessed be the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What? Through the resurrection. So what makes Jesus the absolute, undeniable present, uh, Son of God, Messiah from God? That His resurrection from the dead signifies Him, defines Him as the Messiah. Peter speaks to you personally, and I want you to hear this, because someone especially needs to hear this this morning. Peter says, in this, the resurrection, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you may have been grieved by various trials. Peter experienced unimaginable sufferings and trials. He wasn't delivered from hardly any of them. He saw awful things happen to his very best friends. He experienced awful things. And maybe you would ask Peter, Peter, how have you held on the faith? How do you believe? And Peter would say... I saw the greatest man, the most perfect man, suffer the worst at the hands of the worst people. And he opened not his mouth. He could have escaped, but he willfully suffered and died. And then, you may not believe this, but we had supper three days later. And he made sense of all of this. He did all that for us and we have hope because of His resurrection. We know that God is for us because Jesus died for us. And this is so important. Whether all things work out for us or not, all things are working together for us because how do we know? Jesus died for us. And if Jesus could work death for our good, His resurrection must mean that even the world's worst can produce God's best. Peter tells us that this salvation is unlike any other. Unrivaled by anything anybody else could ever offer you. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. We know that God is for us. We know the cross and resurrection were for us. If Jesus could die that kind of death, if He could rise again, the implications of that alone vindicates all that He ever told, all that He ever said, and extends His promises to you. His resurrection promises us that eternity is real and better and beyond this short life. Heaven is in the future for all who believe. Jesus' resurrection promises us that suffering isn't forever. His encounter and commission over his disciples after his resurrection, his sharing his spirit with them and us makes it clear that God is a personal God. He's greater than your enemies. He has more power over you than whatever limits you have set on yourselves or others have placed on you. What this means for you today, what we come face to face with, what you may be facing for the first time today is Jesus' death and resurrection means that forgiveness is available. Salvation is obtainable. Restoration is achievable. Based on what happened to Jesus on that first Easter, but based also on what was set in motion from that day forward. And consider this. If the resurrection is not limited to or exclusive to Easter, if His resurrection is still at work today, what might you be missing out on? That is what walking by faith means. Walking as if Jesus can be trusted. As if His resurrection power is still at work. Offering to reconcile you to God. To redeem you from sin. And to restore you to life. To connect you to God. Open dialogue in a relationship. Jesus tore down any hostility, any separation between you and God has been torn down. You can walk in communion with God. You can know Him through Jesus, because of Jesus, by Jesus. And if you try to do it apart from Him, the walls will come up. In Christ, you've been forgiven. And you've been given tangible proof of your pardon. The cross happened. Jesus died for your sins. You can walk in that grace. You can walk free from guilt, free from debt, and rebuke the enemy that tries to tell you otherwise because this is an event in history that changed the world. And nobody can undo it. Your faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus' resurrection connects you with the spirit of resurrection. Let me say this as we close. God did not eliminate evil on Easter. He will eliminate evil one day, but he, didn't, he did not that day. Because if He eliminated all evil, suffering, pain, and sorrow that day, He'd have to eliminate all with the capacity and propensity to cause evil, suffering, pain, or sorrow. As in us. He, he didn't eliminate evil, but He placed it on Jesus. So that it would not and could no longer threaten to eliminate us. He placed it on Jesus to place us into Jesus to give us everlasting life. So yeah, evil, sorrow, and pain, and death still persist, but greater and ultimately in the end outlasting in this world's evil is eternal life that is only found in Jesus. His Spirit doesn't promise you. In absence of evil, but rather God's presence in the face of evil. You will never be alone. You don't have to be afraid. You can live free, peacefully, hopefully, purified by God's grace. You can enjoy life and have the capacity to and for love and joy and peace and kindness. Forgiving others and even forgiving yourself. Because Jesus is your new life. When you feel the old you rising up, remember that Jesus has risen and His resurrection is greater and forever. So trust in Him, cling to Him, rest in Him, stay with Him, walk with Him, talk to Him, live by Him, and live through Him. And if you've never trusted Him, I'm not saying through a quick prayer, but in a public declarative kind of way if you're not clinging to Him, if you haven't stayed with Him, if you aren't walking with Him, if you, if you never talk to Him, I don't care what your past religious formalities suggest, if you are not in consort, if you are not in fellowship with Him, if you don't walk with Him and talk with Him, if He's not the first person on your mind every morning and the last person on your mind every night, if He's not with you in every hour, every season, if you don't live by Him and live through Him, today is your day to go public and be courageous and make a statement of faith. Maybe it begins with a simple prayer. Jesus, I need you. I need your resurrection. I need to be reconciled, redeemed, restored, whatever the fancy word is. I just need you. If it can happen to you in that grave in the same spirit at work, God, I want that. Don't you want that? <clears throat> Whatever you call it, I need salvation. I need a new start. I need God in my life. And Jesus, clearly you brought it to me. So what I want is what you offer. The invitation is out for you today. We're going to sing a song, and really it's an anthem that recounts the story we've stood in all of today. The altar will be open and inviting in this time. And after we sing, we're going to come to God's table and receive from Him a tangible reminder of His Easter promise. Just before Jesus died, He took a Jewish feast and turned it on its head. What once was a picture of the Passover lamb would become a picture of Him. No longer was it about a lamb who spared the nation from an evil empire. It would be about a lamb that spared the world from sin and death. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us so that we could be made whole so that His Spirit could fill us with new life. This table is open to all. Jesus died for all, so God forbid any church forbid the gift of grace to anybody. But likewise, may we never come to the table without total reverence in all that the Gospel welcomes us. The Scripture discourages any from coming in a fashion that's not sober and humbly Nothing magical or mystical happens, but something spiritual clearly does when we take from this table. If you come to this table having never received Christ, the good news is you can receive Him today. And I hope that this table's promise shows you, and I pray and trust that God's Spirit will make this personal for you. But first, we're going to sing. And if you have a need, I want you to come down and I want you to pray. I want you to go public with your faith if you've never had before. And after we sing, we're going to come to the table and celebrate. And may this table, may this Easter Sunday always remind you that on Easter, God made a choice to save you. Jesus loves you. His death was for you. His resurrection can be for you as well.